Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 22nd, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I was on the Colin McEnroe show today. He is on public radio up in Hartford, WNPR. He's the best. How the best? Well, this is a strong criteria for me to list you as the best. The guy apparently loves me. Listen to this introduction culminating our one-week festival of stealing guests from the gist with Mike Pesca, where we've stolen Ben Yagoda, we've stolen Emily Yaffe, and then we thought, what could we really do just as the coup de grace? How could we really finish this off, steal a guest in a way that really strikes at the heart of the gist? And we thought, well, why don't we just steal Mike Pesca? And you know, the feeling's mutual. Colin today did a version of Vexillology Corner, credited the gist. He had expert and past gist guest Alexander Petrion. And man, did we talk about flags. And then the strangest thing happened. He did what's known in the biz as a Vox Pop, which stands for Vox Populi, which stands for Voice of the People. And it was about the Connecticut state flag. To quote Alexandra You're drunk, Connecticut state flag. Go home. So they did the man on the street, and here's what a man on the street said. Any thoughts on the Connecticut state flag? It's not good. I mean, it's not a great flag. Frankly, you you can't look at it and know what it is, so that's a problem. Did you hear that voice? I could have sworn that sounds like Matt Dix. Eight-time just guest Matt Dix, our storytelling guide. Probably been on more than anyone but Maria Konnikova. Matt Dix lives in Hartford. Listen again to this voice that I think might be Matt Dix. It's not good. Now listen to what Matt Dix sounds like when he comes on the gist. The best stories, they don't have knots at the end. They have sort of frayed ends, I like to think. That's the same guy, right? Don't you think that's the same guy? If this were radio, I'd play it again, but it's a podcast. You you rewind it. You have the power. All right, so hey, so is it Matt? That's a question. I emailed Matt. And now my question to you is this. Did he say... Quote, Mike, maybe you were thinking of me when you began to think of Hartford. Maybe you know my strong feelings about the Connecticut state flag and its stirring motto, qui transtulit sustinet, he who transplanted still sustains. Alas, that was not me. Or did Matt Dix write, ha, did I show up on WNPR? I got interviewed on the street a couple weeks ago. 20 random questions. I'll tell you what the answer is. It was the second one. It was Matt Dix. And I have a theory why. It's because there are only nine people in Connecticut. I have a similar theory about Los Angeles that makes the movie Crash work so well. So Matt Dix is not on this show today, but on this show is a spiel about what to label the killings in Chattanooga. But first, all right, this is going to be a two-part, two-day interview. It's about a recording artist who has some great songs, has a great story, has a lot of passion, but few fans. Some, but few. 
And we're going to find out what happens when a thoughtful fan of the recording artist writes a book about the recording artist and contemplates the nature of art, criticism, and rap rock. Well, the artist's name is Juicebox. The author's name is Leon Nafok. And that interview is right now. Leon Nafok. Well, now he sits about 30 feet from me in the Slate New York Bureau. He covers justice, the police, crime. He does great work. A decade ago, a little more, he was a high school kid. He was in some bands. He went to a summer camp. He met a cool kid at summer camp. So he winds up setting up a show in his hometown, Leon's hometown of Oak Park, Illinois, where his friend and his friend's bandmates want to play. Cool. Then his friend asks Leon a question that changes Leon's life. Here's the question. Hey, do you mind if a friend of mine plays for a few minutes? This guy rocks. This guy raps. This guy's name is Juicebox. Three X's. The Next Next Level, a story of rap, friendship, and almost giving up is Leon's book about his relationship to Juice Box, to the box, to the juice. Leon, what do you call him? That, I call that him was juice. an issue, right? Yeah, it is an issue. I mean, he does have a real name, but no one calls him by his real name. So uh, I call him Juice. And so you liked him because of his live performance. He blew the roof off that joint. So it was a, it was a, a show that I was asked to put on by a friend who I'd met at summer camp. He was in a band that, that I thought was really cool. And so when he asked me to, to, to find him a place to play in my hometown, I was very excited. I made posters and stuff, put them all up, put them up all over my school. And then uh, relatively last minute, he was like, I have this friend, Juicebox, uh, who's a rapper, and uh, I think you like him. Here's a couple of his songs. Like, would it be cool if he uh, joined the bill? Uh, I, of course, said yes. And, and, and uh, I had no idea that, that this would be the, the guy who I would remember from this night. You know, my friend's band, I still think they're really cool, but the Juicebox set from that evening is what I... Uh, what I remember, and and uh, it's what kind of ended up, you know. Now that this book is out, I can say without with a pretty straight face that it sort of changed my life. What about it? How do you perform? He got up there, and and as I remember it, you know, he, I didn't even realize he was going up on stage when I hear his voice from PA system being like, "Someone turn my fucking mic up!" Yelling at the crowd, kind of being very uh, almost like hostile. And I'm like, "Who is this guy?" You know, he he's wearing a jumpsuit. He just looks possessed. He just looks like a total, you know force of nature like that's the phrase i think that that's most apt he you couldn't take your eyes off of him and he was jumping all over the place he was sort of thrashing around he was throwing himself at the ground you know at one point he grabbed my face with his hands like and just was like rapping at me and he you know he had zits on his face and he had a terrible haircut he was just this like totally like feral animal you know you know i had never seen anyone like that before by the end of the show his you know the jumpsuit's off he's he's sort of collapsed in a pile on the floor and i don't know was, he just had this energy that that uh totally blew our minds, everyone who was there. And if you see a juice box show today, how different is it from when he played that youth center back in, what was it, 2000-something? 2003. Yeah. Yeah. It's different. He's a lot tighter now. He's got a band, first of all. That's one big difference. He plays with the guitar player and a drummer. Very, very much inspired by like Springsteen, Bob Seger, very like uh, kind of arena rock. Um, yeah. And he does a lot of the you know cheap trick kind of moves. He does scissor kicks and he plays... Uh, with this denim jacket that he keeps open. Sometimes it comes off by the end. But there's still a sort of 
tension to it and a kind of hostility and a confrontational aspect that uh, has been consistent uh, in his live performances since the beginning. So the music that he reminds me of is, you know, I got to say it, it's Kid Rock and the Beastie Boys and Beck, white rappers, you can't get around that. Yep. And he loves all he loves all those. And all and those. also, you, do you know the band Suicide, Dream Baby Dream? Yeah, I there's think, a little bit of that in, in, in some of his like more uh, melodic stuff. Do a Desert Island disc with Juicebox. Okay. If, if you have, you can only listen to three juice box sh- tracks. What'll they be? Sure. So the first one I'll, I'll mention is from 2009. Uh, it was during a, a period in his life when he was making really like unabashed dance music. He kind of was inspired by like Baltimore club music and Chicago house. And he made one of the songs that came out of that period was 100 miles per hour or 100 mph. It's a dance song. It tells you what to do. You know, it tells you it tells you what to do when you're on the dance floor. All I really know is we got to make it through the day. 100 miles per hour. Take us out of his dance period somewhere else. All right. So then in 2012, he put out his first proper LP, which is called I Don't Want to Go Into the Darkness. Maybe the best one for people to check out would be 21 on the 101. It's inspiring. It's, you know, that's the other thing about Jesus music is you listen to it and you get kind of like, you get amped about, you know, whatever your, it's, whatever your dreams are. He's pretty vague. You know, he's talking about his own dreams. but That's can, right. Th- there's a lot of abstract nouns in his music because, you know, and it's kind of one size fits all. On 21 and the 101, he, he's describing, you know, touring, being young and touring and uh, kind of driving somewhere where you don't know where you're going. Sometimes you get beat by the night. You're living on the edge, but you feel all right. 21 on the 101. 21 on the 101. You're on the road. You what else we got? Um, and then from his latest album. Yes. What's um, the latest iteration of Juice Box? So this this came out just a couple of months. It came out at the beginning of June. Uh, album's called Heartland 99. I think it's, you know, his strongest stuff to date. Um, I think he does too. One of the things that I really love about him is that he's very confident that he's getting better. And, he's, and he cares a lot about getting better. You know, like his, his ambitions are very concrete like he's like i want to i want to make transcendent i want to make a transcendent pop record and i think this 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 latest album is as close to that as he's come I'll, I'll mention one that that doesn't actually have any rapping in it because i think this is another thing he's gotten really good at is writing these kind of modern lovers jonathan richmond inspired ramones inspired pop songs some of which are really beautiful and, and 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 melodic open up your life is the name of a song on there that i feel like is the centerpiece of the record and it's got a it's got a real kind of anthemic quality to it and it'll leave you excited about your life He does actually have a sort of strange level of success or a strange variety of success. Yes. Maybe is a better way to put it. He has champions in, in very high places. You know, uh, he played a show with Andrew W.K. recently, who he has a lot in common with, I think. A lot of art, art world people know him and, and like him. I pitched a, a, an event to a, to a curator at, at the New Museum uh, in connection with the book, and, and she wrote back to me. She's like, oh, yeah, I remember, I remember Juicebox. And I was just, I was like, wow, but, you know, he has fans all over the country. He could play at, you know, any city in America and, and have, you know, at least 20 people show up, but also not that many more than 20 people. But yeah, yeah. So like I said, he he, he has sort of made inroads in, with people who are, you know, 
influential in the industry. Um, you know, his, his one of his good friends is a producer and a label owner who works with Snoop Dogg and, you know, Popcon and other very sort of fashionable artists. But but yeah, he he's just hasn't crossed over and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, he doesn't get written, written, written about on Pitchfork, for example. How much of your attraction to him is the fact that he was, uh, you know, he's your opposite in so many ways? I think a lot. You know, at the time when I first cross paths with him. I was probably, this was March 2003, so I was about to go to college. You know, he went to college for a semester, but then dropped out. You know, my life has been very kind of comfortable and, and, and stable compared to his and compared to anyone's. I've had a very sort of easy time of things. I went to school, I graduated, I got a job, I got married, I have a dog. You know, and, and, and he's kind of been this, you know, on this very turbulent path where long stretches of time have been spent living on people's couches. You know, he hasn't had a steady job historically. He, he He's made ends meet through gigs, through doing jingles for, for TV commercials. But he kind of represents for me this sort of free way of life. He has rejected, you know, any kind of temptation to, 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 to live a comfortable life. Yeah. But is he the uncaged Leon? Is he Leon's id? Like, why is it that you look at him? I with, wish. Well, does, why do you look at him with a little bit of jealousy as opposed to, hey, I like music. I was in bands. But, man, I'm so glad I don't live that sort of life. But I, what I, I am jealous of him because I feel like he can tap into something that I can't tap into as, as a non-artist and as someone who, you know, uh, who does work that, that requires, like, kind of sitting down and planning and and. and thinking and obviously his does too you know and, and I over the course of writing the book I kind of realized the extent to which yeah. he thinks about what he does and how where he is um, but think about the extent of your artistry that you're not giving yourself credit for all the choices you make that maybe we could call it journalism but there's definitely an artistry there think about this book I mean this book is a non-fiction book but it's not it's not dry you could have taken it in any direction there are contemplations about the difference between the critic and the artist I mean I think that's all you know it's contained a little bit but I think it's all artistry in a way but see, you're saying artistry. That's correct. Maybe it's artistry. Maybe it's craftsmanship. But yeah. it's not art, you know? I don't oh, think it's, it's not art. art? Maybe, the, I don't know. Look, in my, in my dream, someone will say that this book is a work of well, art. Do you, I mean, do you have art? <laughs> okay. Do you have art within you that doesn't have an outlet or that you'd like to be an artist? You'd like to have produced art? <laughs> uh, I think I met him at a moment when I, I was sort of ready to, 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 to kind of put away uh, my kind of youth, youthful ambitions at, at, at being some kind of creative uh, genius. You know, I, I think I had sort of ambient dreams of writing a novel or, like you said, I, I was in bands, I wrote songs, and I, I never took it all too seriously. But in the back of my head, like, I kind of thought, okay, well, I'll figure something out. Like, I obviously this is in me. And I, at age, age 28, which is when I met, met up with him in New York when he moved here, I, at that point I was kind of ready to be like, all right, you know, I have my career, this is who I am. I, I just don't have it in me. And so this is, as much as any book I've ever read, the sort of book that calls out for an afterword, because you write about your relationship with Juicebox, but it wasn't that explored before you decided to take on the book project, right? And afterwards, you probably, tell me if this is true, you've had more interactions with Juicebox as a result of the book? Oh, yeah. Than, yeah, you did before you the really, I mean, we were, we were acquaintances, you know, for most of our lives. We he would call me or rather email me or text me to say, hey, I'm going to be in your town. I'll be playing a show. 
or you know, hey, I have this new song or this new album, check it out. But I kind of assumed he did that with like lots and lots of people whom he had met, you know, while traveling the, the world. He and I kind of became friends. You know, he he, we really got to know each other. I I kind of was excited that he wanted to be friends with me. That he actually, you know, felt like I could offer him something as a as a human being. Because at least at the beginning, I sort of saw him as this like otherworldly creature, you know, who I couldn't, you know, what do I have to creature to... animal? Yeah, well, yes. I'm, but, uh, I know but, you say that a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I and I was kind of disavowed of that of that perception by the time I was done done with the, the interviews and stuff. But um, and I think becoming friends, you know, made me realize, oh well, you know, not to be too pat about it, but like, you know, we're not that different after all. We are different, very different. But I think I was also not giving him enough credit. In, in thinking, oh, well, I, I, a guy like me could never be friends with a guy like him. And we, you know, he DJed my wedding. He came to my bachelor party. You know, we hung out, like, went to parties together. And, uh, yeah, it definitely, our relationship changed over the course of the book, for sure. And now, so what's his reaction to the book? Uh, you know, I think the, the, the attention the book's gotten, like, has involved people who have never heard of him before writing about him. And, and they haven't yet all given him a real fair chance, I think. Like, people have... You know, I feel like it's probably partly my fault that they came away from the book feeling like thinking that he's this just total like unaccomplished loser, which is like the furthest thing f- from what I think. When and I read I, the book. I didn't come up with that. Idea. I think people had. I think some people have this impression for the book that I was writing about someone who just was a total failure, which is just not true. Because I think he, I think he, he's extraordinarily accomplished. Not just because he has you know certain famous people who think he's great, but because you know he he really has stuck to a, an artistic vision throughout his life. And uh, he keeps getting better and more ambitious. But I think, like, being the subject of a book, you know, can you imagine, like, being under such sort of intense scrutiny? Like, that would be hard, sort of, no matter what the book said or how people reacted to it. So you won't have to imagine, because tomorrow we do the full Juicebox interview. His thoughts on the rap game, his place in it, and his place in this book you've been hearing about. The Next Next Level, a story of rap, friendship, and almost giving up by Leon Nafok. Thanks, Leon. Thanks. Hanging out, chilling on my porch up front. Nothing to do, so we let the beat bump. Snagging on pizza, messing around. Just killing some time in the wasted time. And things aren't looking up, yo, man, they're looking down. You try to get a job, but there's nothing to be found. But it's not as bad as it seems, because you can still dream. Ah, the post office. By ah, I mean ah. Going to the post office takes up valuable time, but leasing a postage meter during your mailing at home is expensive. Have multi-year commitments, hidden fees. Can't even get a good price on how much they cost. I went, because I say this all the time. I went to try to figure out how much a postage meter is. It's opaque. I know a better way than all of this. Stamps.com. You buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk. You use your own computer and printer. You even get special discounts you can't find at the post office. Why? There are no discounts at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter for just a fraction of the cost. You can save up to 80% compared to this postage meter we've been talking about, and you'll avoid all those time-consuming trips to the post office. A lot of them aren't even air-conditioned in summer. So right now, use my promo code, The Gist, for a special offer, a no-risk trial, a $110 bonus offer. It includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in The Gist. That's Stamps.com. Enter The Gist. The Gist. 
And now the spiel, when terrorism doesn't tell you enough. An angry white man in North Carolina kills three promising young Muslim students and demands go up that it be called a hate crime, perhaps terrorism. A once promising Muslim student who has slipped into depression and it would seem found sucker in the teachings of radical Islam kills five American servicemen and demands go up that it be called terrorism. An adrift young man filled with racist thoughts metastasized online from Tennessee kills nine worshipers. How is this not terrorism also? All the crimes are terrifying, but they're so familiar by now as to challenge the definition of terrorism. Terrorism doesn't have a real definition. Well, legal experts will tell you it does, but then when you read the criminal code, Title 18, Section 2231, terrorism are dangerous crimes intended to, quote, influence the policy of a government. As Slate's Will Salatan points out, that is so broad as to cover every politically motivated crime. So let's go to the Tennessee shooter, by whom I mean the shooter of five Marines and one sailor, not the shooter of churchgoers. I have to clarify which Tennessee mass shooter in the last five weeks, because America. The Chattanooga shooter was, investigators say, looking into martyrdom in the days leading up to his crime. And he had traveled to Jordan, and he was a Muslim. Still, as CNN reported yesterday. Anderson, the investigators to date have not found anything, we are told, that suggests this was ISIS-related, ISIS-inspired, or had anything to do with radical Islam uh, being involved with this. What they have found are old writings, which were anti-U.S. policy in the Middle East. But those writings, some more than a year ago now, also include writings that we are told uh, point to somebody who is suicidal. So we have this confusing picture. Not so confusing. The ranks of suicide bombers, experts say, are not surprisingly often filled with suicidal people, independent of their supposed religious motivation. Now, some on the right don't want to hear any nuance about this. They want a certain set of words to be said, to be repeated, to be underlined. Here's presidential candidate Bobby Jindal saying Obama is politically incorrect. Look, Islam's got a problem. This president seems to bend over backwards to want to avoid saying that. Jen, he won't even say the words radical Islamic terrorism. And here's Fox News playing President Obama's initial description of the events and then reacting to the words the president used. You'll hear Charles Krauthammer after you hear Obama. What appears to be a long gun carried out these attacks. Uh, we've identified a name. You were saying? When you say lone gunman, what you're doing subtly or unsubtly is disconnecting the dots. When we had the underwear bomber trying to bring down a plane over Detroit, Obama immediately said that this was an isolated extremist. It wasn't, in fact. It turned out to be connected to al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So I think it's sort of the, the whole, the six and a half years of Obama always wanting to err on the side of downplaying the threat. The threat is radical Islam, which he won't say. It might feel splenetic to say the president doesn't get it, but I think he gets it. He's just making a different calculation when he doesn't say radical Islam. First of all, he spoke at a pretty early juncture, and it really was too early to tell what the shooter's motivations were. So saying it would have been speculative. He also doesn't say it because he wants to specifically portray ISIS 
as not being truly Islamic. And if this guy was in any way motivated by ISIS, he doesn't want to give ISIS that sort of credit. He wants to undermine their brand a little bit. And he also doesn't want to say it because saying it muddies the constant refrain, the refrain that was repeated even by the George W. Bush administration, our war is not with Islam. So if you want to make that point clear, you don't call what happened radical Islam. I happen to think, and I know the president does too, that the act that we saw in Chattanooga was motivated in part by a misreading of Islam. And it probably does fit a reasonable definition of terrorism. But that is not the only way to think about this crime, especially if your goal is stopping it the next time. Because if that's your goal, if that's what you need to do, and you think the problem is terrorism, then you're telling yourself that here's what we need to do. We either need to reach across the sea and get a virulent band of nihilists to change their tune, or we need to reach into the minds of the impressionable, the angry, the unwell, and somehow stop these minds from absorbing the message. Or instead of that, we could simply regulate something in this country that we as a country have the ability, nay, the responsibility to regulate. All of these shooters were attracted to guns. The Tennessee shooter, the North Carolina shooter, the other Tennessee shooter, heck, the Connecticut shooter who targeted first graders. Guns. In England yesterday, authorities broke up a conspiracy to kill an American serviceman. The inspiration for this was an actual horrible crime that happened in 2013, the murder of a British serviceman by two radical Islamists who were British citizens. They set upon Lee Rigby. They stabbed him to death. I said him, not them. There was one victim. It was terrible, but it was solitary. And one reason why the latest plot was unearthed was that it was slowed down by the need to stage an accident to draw a serviceman close to stab him with a knife. Using a gun makes all of those things much easier to accomplish. So terrorism, hate crime, act of war, lone wolf, probably, maybe, actually, could be. They're all debatable, but readily available guns, there is no ambiguity there. We can either do something to lessen the overall murderous impulses that human beings have, we could set up dragnets and monitoring protocols to thwart the, the impulses before they take shape. Or we can severely limit the guns, and then let's see which one saves more lives. It doesn't seem that hard a choice to me. That's it for today's show. Producer Andrea Salenzi's Nom de Rap is File Bounce. That's Bounds with three Zs. Joe Meyer is the GIST's managing producer, but you might know him from his 1988 LP, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Mispronounce Often. Slate's executive producer, Andy Bowers, spells executive producer with seven X's. That's three X's in a row in the word executive, and the other X's interspersed at random intervals and appearing in different places depending on what generation of business card he's using. The GIST, tomorrow a word or several words from Juicebox himself. We'll be taking it to the next, next, next level. Guess what? There are three X's in that phrase. Thanks for listening.